feel like I should uh, start singing ground control to Major Tom. <laughs> um, this kind of delicate uh, contraption of a microphone. Uh, can everyone hear well? Okay. Um, good evening. How are you all doing? Thumbs up, thumbs down, a little, mm, yeah. Yeah. It's a ride. Thanks for your honesty with that. Mm. Could even do this. It's all right. It won't take it personal. I wanted to start this evening by just saying something about actually listening to a Dharma talk. Um, And it just brings up so much for me because I've spent much more time on that in that part of the room where you are sitting than up here and just have a a flood of uh, mostly very wonderful feelings about uh, listening to Dharma talks. And I'm just the kind of student, it's like, oof, give me more, you know? And then I would encounter other dear friends who would say things like, I hate Dharma talks. You know, or, or, you know, they, they're triggering or... So it, it's, um, what is the purpose, really? Let's start with that. What is the purpose of a, of a talk, uh, Dharma talk, Dharma meaning uh, teachings of the Buddha? Uh, the purpose is to, at least my intention, is to offer hopefully some uh, inspiration for your practice, maybe even some... Uh, direction, um, if that feels useful to you. Uh, That's really the intention. And it's really an interchange of uh, giving and receiving. And I also am receiving this talk. I know that sounds weird because there's been a preparation. But my experience often with offering Dharma talks is that I am receiving the talk as it's kind of coming through as well. Um, I'm not saying that to be weird. It's just it's just how it is. So, <clears throat> so I offer this to you for you know for the benefit of your of your practice, and may it support you. And one way to listen is really to uh, listen to what feels useful or accessible. I do remember one time struggling very intensely in a talk that was on selflessness and getting more and more disturbed because I couldn't, my mind couldn't grasp it. And there was a lot of pressure internally to try to grasp it. And some wise teachers have said, you know, just just receive what feels useful and maybe not struggle too much with what doesn't, which, by the way, doesn't mean um, there's no room for dialogue around something you heard that, that wasn't useful. But for your own practice, it can be quite useful to just notice what supports you in what's being said. And uh, forgive me for the rest. <clears throat> or not. <laughs> so this is a... Um, I, t- I want to talk tonight about mindfulness. And uh start with a poem or a quote from... Anthony DeMello. I don't know if anyone is familiar in the room with Anthony DeMello. He was a, he's an, an Indian man born uh, in British-occupied India in uh, 1931. Uh, died at 55 of a heart attack. Beautiful teacher. Um, became a Jesuit in the Christian tradition and really was a radical in that um, group. He he moved from a lot of conservatism into a pretty, what I experienced, a pretty spacious and uh, beautiful um, teachings on love and wisdom, a lo- lot of humor as well. And sadly, in that particular tradition, he's he's kind of like sectioned off, like, you know, with a little caveat, like these aren't the real teachings or something like that, which we could say a lot about, but we won't. So, here's, here's a quote from him. So he asks, he's, he's repeating a, a question. What kind of a person does enlightenment produce? Said the master, to be public-spirited and belong to no party, 
to move without being bound to any given course, to take things as they come. Have no remorse for the past, no anxiety for the future, to move when pushed, to come when dragged, to be like a mighty gale, like a feather in the wind, like weeds floating on a river, like a millstone meekly grinding, to love all creation equally, as heaven and earth are equal to all. Such is the product of enlightenment. On hearing those, these words, one of the younger disciples cried, this sort of teaching is not for the living but for the dead, and walked away never to return. So here's another wisdom offering, and I credit my friend and colleague Peggy Gillespie with sharing this poem. Some of you may have heard it before. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand with when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you are probably the family dog. So... What are our expectations of practice? You know, sometimes they're really high. And, um, and that can create a lot of suffering, even though the intentions can be quite beautiful. Um, but when we sit down on the cushion and pay attention, it's another story. And actually what what we might call in as spiritual warriors or practitioners or or qualities um, that are humbling and and fierce at the same time, like patience and humility and steadfastness, open-mindedness, letting go. We hear that so much. And these aren't easy, really. But necessary if we're going to do this kind of practice. Otherwise, it's, 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 it's just going to feel brutal, really. If we bring that forced quality to our practice, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because I was trained that way. I'm, I'm I'm suspecting some others in the room were also. And there are ways that that uh, kind of, you know, sit still till you die method, um, I, there were ways that I found that useful, actually. Um, some ways. <laughs> um, yet over time, uh, it couldn't be sustained because, you know, the expectations got higher and higher and the fruits got less and less, you know, because that driven quality, which um, I experience living in this culture and, and being brought up in my family, uh, really, in, in many ways, it, it, it got me to stay on a retreat, which for this person individually, that was helpful. Uh, that was helpful. But over time, uh, really, um, the, in some ways, the more difficult aspects for me, in practice, was uh, softening, was uh, allowing uh, myself to not drive uh, this being so hard. Now, now, what does that mean? Um, well, it might mean, let's just say, let me just give you an example. So many years ago, I remember thinking, okay, I'm really blowing it if I don't do this walking practice. I'm, I'm really not applying myself well. And often in the first few days, there's a lot of tiredness. And I remember uh, going to my room and guiltily taking a nap. 
And something happened in that because the mind was kind of like, ah, you shouldn't be doing this, you should be walking. And then something just shifted and there was this sweetness, this sweetness that, that emerged of like, wow, this is really, this is really peaceful. Like, I'm not sure I even ever had a sleep that sweet. And it was gentle. And I began to learn something different about practice. Like, well, maybe it takes a kind of discriminating wisdom that, you know, we, we don't always have, but sometimes we do. And it might take that to um, sense or allow for what's needed for, hmm, you know, rejuvenation or balance. Hmm? And, um, and the other discovery besides the sweetness was, oh, w- mindfulness is present. You know, there's so many paradoxes in this practice that we we get the idea that the way to get it, you know, and the prima way to get it is sitting, and the prima way to get it is sitting on a cushion, and the prima way to get it is sitting on a cushion in a full lotus position. Well, you know, good luck. I mean, if your body can do that, and that's supportive to your practice, great. But if it can't, no problem. No, No problem. I mean, I personally am pretty attached to sitting on a cushion and I have some knee issues. And so I've been slowly allowing myself to sit in a chair and it's perfectly fine. And one can practice very deeply sitting in a chair. So this discriminating wisdom, like how even how we practice is essential. And, you know, sometimes it's just, I don't know. You know, the, the the flip side of the, the um, nap story is another time uh, I really didn't want to do a walking meditation. I really, really didn't want to. And another part of me was like, just go, just go, just go. And I can tell you exactly where I was because those moments, someone asked about insight today. It's interesting, if over time doing retreats, you can kind of remember these moments of, the mind waking up and oftentimes when we least expect it. So I, I went down in the, it was in the evening. I went down in the lower walking room and I was just walking, um, just walking back and forth and like, and really what was going on in my mind is I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. And then, and then doubt would rise like, well, why are you doing it? If you hate it, you know, what's the point? And then, um, I don't know if any of you, you've only been here a few nights, but, Oftentimes you can hear the, the coyotes, uh, the coyotes outside, and usually there's more than one, so they really, really have a beautiful howl together. And it just, I mean, it was completely quiet. I was completely quiet, but this howling, you know, came up through my being. And it was just, it just woke up my whole system. Like th- being present with that agony was liberating. And it's not always. It's not always liberating, meaning like sometimes if we have that bearing down, whatever conditions were there, you could say, was I bearing down? I actually wasn't. I was just like, I'm doing it, I'm hating it. You know, doing it, hating it. You know, that's different than, than um, it's like opening to what is rather than it's got to be a certain way and I shouldn't be feeling this. That's really where we can get into a lot of trouble. And trouble meaning what? It's just conditioning. That the hating, the not liking, the, the, uh, the not liking our practice, the thinking that our minds and hearts should be somewhere else than where they are, it's conditioning. Look at the world we live in. How, how, should we ex- how can we expect ourselves to be here, sit down, and all of a sudden all that conditioning outside of us goes away? That's crazy. It, it actually it can intensify. So how do we work with it? How do we work with that? Because that's not necessarily very easy or pleasant. Or why? Maybe we want to even back up before we get to the how and say why. Why practice? I think of a, a colleague of mine, uh, of ours, um, Dara Williams, and uh, in one talk mm, I was listening to, that she gave, she said, how can we expect ourselves to truly understand the world 
if we can't understand our own minds and hearts. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And yet, you know, it's, it's kind of a small percentage of the population that's interested in sitting for days upon end, silent and slogging along and walking and sitting. That's not a big part of the population. Or maybe in other traditions, other kinds of retreats that takes this kind of discipline. It's not, you know, the larger aspect of our population, really. And yet what happens when, when we take the time to pay attention to our own minds and hearts, we do understand the world. Now, I'm not in this arrogant I-know I way, really quite the opposite. Wow, you know, this is the human condition. And it impacts us in various ways, really. I mean, we are, we're a, a queer family here together, and we're also really diverse. We're really diverse in terms of our backgrounds, our religions, our class, our gender identities, ages, race, physical ability, mental health challenges, We can add to the list, surely. You know, we are a diverse community and we're impacted in very particular ways based on that. And our intersectionality in that ranges as well. There's a fearlessness to practice. Fearlessness, really. And that fearlessness meets fear. It's not about not feeling fear. It reminds me of a book that, uh, I love the title, of one of Pema Children's books, The Wisdom of Insecurity. I mean, when we really sit down to practice, that's what we begin to see. You know, this changing nature of mind, heart, life all around us. Not the most settling thing, but it is, it is opening to life. That same um, sage that I just spoke of, Anthony DeMello, he described enlightenment as this. It's the absolute cooperation with the inevitable. It's so cliched to say being with what is, isn't it? It's like, you know, but... It is that, really. You know what I mean? (laughs) Chuckling. Um, It's definitely a buzzword, mindfulness, being present, be here now. It was actually one of my first Dharma books that I read, Ram Das. So this is both a practice, you know, if we think of mindfulness itself, it's both a practice and an outcome of practice. If we look at, um, we investigate mindfulness in this particular tradition, this um, Theravadan tradition in Buddhism, there, as I said, uh, I can't remember if it was yesterday or earlier today, there's a lot of lists. And mindfulness is found in numerous lists. Um, So there's five spiritual faculties, there are the four foundations of mindfulness, a very comprehensive uh, teaching about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind itself, and mindfulness of objects of the mind. Don't don't stress about what I'm saying. Just just outlining a few things here. Um, and then it's also one of the seven factors of awakening. These seven factors of awakening. The Buddha said that. Uh, just as the dawn is the forerunner and precursor of the arising of the sun, so too good friendship, association with the wise, and careful attention are the forerunners of the arising of these factors of awakening. And what are they? There's mindfulness, investigation, where we bring that curiosity and attention and application of mindfulness to the direct 
what we're directly experiencing. There's energy. You know, probably, we, you know, when Winnie asked today, you know, who's been sleepy, like pretty much, I would say 95% of the room raised their hands. You know, sometimes energy is low, very much so, on the first couple of days of a retreat. Please don't worry about that. It's just the body-mind doing its thing. You know, it needs some time to settle. We don't have to give it a hard time. Poor thing. So that energy effort. And over time, with you know, just that continued practice, it does raise energy. So even if you feel like, ugh, you know, like why bother? You know, I'm not, there's nothing coming out of this but, you know, more stress or frustration. Oh, no, just begin again. You know, and, and that over time, it builds. It's like that old adage, you know, if you're, you're filling up a bucket of water one drop at a time, it actually does get full. It's just that this, it takes an application of patience and perseverance or else it's not going to happen. So there's mindfulness, investigation, energy or effort. Rapture. It's kind of a cool word, isn't it? Rapture. Um, these are all trans- translated into English, by the way. The, the, the original language of the Buddha was in Pali. So rapture is a kind of that, mm, well, there's a lot of ways to talk about it, but from my experience, it's just kind of like a joyful high, really. <laughs> this is kind of a sense of um, joy, presence, the hindrances are are blocked when the um, the factors of a, awakening are in play. They can't come in, and and each factor supports the other. So mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Uh, one of, a quote from the, the translated discourses of the Buddha is um, bhikkhus. Bhikkhus means monks or community of um, practitioners. I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to a abandoning of the things that fetter or that we suffer with. I do not see even one thing that when developed and cultivated leads to the abandoning of the things that fetter so effectively as this, the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening. So let's just tonight pay attention to mindfulness. And um, and, and what is it really? And how do we experience it? So mindfulness, you know, in the in the... Everyday vernacular, it, it, sig- it signifies attentiveness to the present. And it expresses itself um, in different ways. It's actually a factor of mind in, <clears throat> in every situation in practice. Um, it may not be present, but it influences. Uh, it influences our practice in, in every situation. It, perhaps there could be never too much mindfulness, really. So we might look at this attentiveness in one way as uh, a not forgetting or a steadying of our attention. So we've been offering teachings today in that vein, a steadying of attention where um, I often use this metaphor many people have, so you've probably heard it before. I like it a lot because um, I've... Uh, been a companion to dogs in my life since my young adulthood, so have been around their training process. And so just thinking about training, and Winnie talked about um, one way that isn't so helpful in training a puppy, uh, but I think often about training a puppy well. Uh, th- again, there's that perseverance, you know, and kindness, really, uh, so it might be like, sit, you know. No, no I don't want to. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> I'm more interested in this. Come back, you know, sit. You know, with that we just keep bringing that attention back. And I learned the power of um, dog training um, in reverse when I was uh, 
in my 20s and I lived in a group household and a dear friend of mine had this sweetest little black lab puppy named Molly and Molly was great and she loved Molly to jump up on her and sit in her lap and you know just Molly here Molly there do whatever you want because you're cute and you're little but you know a year and a half later Molly was probably another 60 pounds bigger and um really suffered a lot because she didn't have that kind of training. So she wasn't so cute anymore and she would jump on people and, um, and it was difficult, it was painful. Um, she was still very well loved by her, uh, her person, but it was a really big learning for me of like, oh, I know we, we may have different issues about owning dogs, I'm, so I'm not going to presume we're all in favor of that, but those of us that have them, uh, you know, training is, is important for, for everyone's well-being. So training the mind, training the mind to come back again. You know, it's, yeah, it's tedious, some, oftentimes not very interesting, but we do it, you know, just as I was saying earlier, you know, if you're an athlete or an artist, a musician, or some discipline where you repeat scales, there's a reason for it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's strengthening. And in terms of this mindfulness practice, we go back to, let's say we go back to a particular uh, object, if you will, object of our attention, whether it's the breath or that sense of, the sitting posture or sound, we're coming back to that again. What feels, you know, most easeful for us is, tends to be useful um, because then we're struggling less with it. We just come back again and again. It creates a suppleness of mind. It does a lot of things. It creates a suppleness of mind. It also has a byproduct of concentration and calm. C-A-L-M, calm. So in the action, if you will, or in the directing the mind in that way, may not feel very calm, may not feel very concentrated. But over time, that's really the fruit of that practice. That It steadies the mind. The mind gets clearer. So with that steadying, that one-pointedness, it leads to this greater concentration, greater clarity. So when, when the mind is, um, has that kind of suppleness, it, it sees more clearly. It just sees things more clearly. So back to my um, beloved colleague's quote, you know, why do we practice? How are we going to understand the world if we don't understand our own minds and hearts? Well, here it is in the practice. You know, we start to see more clearly. What do we see? Well, we just see what's happening. What's happening? What's happening right now? So maybe there's a thought in the mind, Jean's ringing the bell or whatever. Why is she doing that? Or maybe she's just receiving the sound. We begin to notice more and more these uh, doorways, uh, doorways of, of per- perception and um, awareness, like through, we just notice seeing, just pure seeing. Oh, that's what's happening. There's color and form and shape. I remember once going to my teacher Joseph and saying, you know, I walked in the dining hall, I just, ah. Oh. Yeah, I could just feel everybody's vulnerability. <laughs> could I? I don't know. Maybe I could. But that's what that was what this mind was was experiencing. I could feel vulnerability. Well, probably because there was vulnerability in this being. And one of the things he said to me was, um, "Just note seeing. Just notice seeing." Um, I actually found that instruction really, really helpful. Now, one of the ingredients that goes in, into that is um, he, he is a beloved teacher of mine, so I, I, I trust his suggestion. 
doesn't mean that maybe everything you suggest is, is helpful, but I, I trust enough that I was willing to investigate that. Because a little part of the mind was like, well, you know, can't he see the vulnerability? What's wrong with him? You know, and, and, um, but it helped, it actually helped create space in the mind and heart. It didn't necessarily negate actually the wise understanding that we are vulnerable as human beings. We absolutely are. But it allowed some steadying of mind just to see. And it was interesting to me. So the next time I went into the Dharma Hall, it was just interesting, like, excuse me, the uh, dining room. It was just interesting to notice seeing, like movement and, and, you know, all the energy that goes into, you know, eating and going for food, waiting in line, you know, just, just sort of noticing that as... Um, color, form, energy changing. You know, it just, it just helped open the mind and heart to, to being with this vast changing nature of things. So we begin, as we study the mind, to see more, well, what's happening? What's happening in our direct experience? So we might notice seeing, we might notice hearing, smelling, we feel sensations more. We might notice things that are pleasant, uh, like we'd like them to stay, whatever that is. Say we have a sitting, we feel sense of peace in that sitting, and it's like, you know, I got it. <laughs> I got it. I'm going to make it happen now. And then the next sitting, you sit down and anything but peaceful. And, you know, often the thought is, what did I do wrong? At least it was, has been in my mind. Or, you know, like, what I, how can I get it back? How can I get that back? I spent a whole retreat trying to get maybe five minutes of bliss back. I'm serious. <laughs> Seven days, <laughs> you know? And it was a great learning. So at one point, the mind just woke up. It's like, you know, this isn't that much fun. <laughs> and, and, it, and it didn't create the bliss, you know. But there is a, you know, there's a grasping to that, that beautiful feeling. And there's nothing wrong with when we have those moments of calm or peace or opening. If, if your mind has had that, they may, it may not. You know, it, it feels, it's nice. It feels good. And it changes. It comes and goes. As we start to pay attention and see more clearly, that's another really big thing. It's not intellectual. We just see things are changing. Our states of mind, our relationship to what's happening. You know, we think we know ourselves until we sit down on a cushion and just, you know, open up to what is. It can kind of blow a lot of theories. So steadying the mind, paying attention, noticing what arises. And then how, you know, oftentimes you you hear the the question like, how do we work with that? And I kind of want to work with... with language a little bit. Because, you know... How do we play with it, maybe, rather than work with it? How do we be with it? Working with it just has, in my mind, has this quality of, like, got to do something. And there's a lot of paradox in this teaching, because we give a lot of instructions about, you know, inclining the mind or directing the mind. So what about, you know, uh, let's just say, and this question came up earlier today, you know, something, the mind has some steadiness to it, um, you know, aware of, you know, what's present, whether it's a feeling, or thought, or sensation. Uh, and let's just say something, you know, repeats itself. Uh, it could be a memory, it could be a feeling, it could be a story in one's head about, some oftentimes can be about, someone we love or don't love, some interaction that we want to finish or, you know, go back to or uh, create a new or, you know, it's, it, our minds can really latch on to what feels unresolved in our heart. 
I'm just thinking of Rilke's quote, be patient with all that is unresolved in one's heart. So sometimes things can come up really in a flood, you know, in a, and, and it really feels like, it does really, maybe, or a tsunami, you know, in your mind, heart. And, and how do you be with that? Or how do you work with that? Or what to do with that? Again, that question came up today. And, you know, it's, it really varies. Like, sometimes, I remember um, one of my teachers, Michelle McDonald, said, you know, sometimes you just have to head for the hills. I mean, and that's wisdom. You know, if it's, if it's really like, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to pass out here or just this is unbearable. Um, it can be really, really useful to uh, find your skillful version of heading for the hills. That might be, heading for the hills might be opening your eyes, standing up, or it might be doing, you know, a longer walking, you know, where you just literally allow some physical space even. So we learn over time with this application and cultivation of mindfulness that we learn too a certain kind of um, skillfulness or what's useful, what's beneficial. Sometimes we don't know. But over time you can, you can kind of rely on, hey, I need, a little, I need to back up a little bit here. Or it may be, no, I need to, I need to, I'd like to come full, I'd like to come closer in on that. And sometimes there's enough steadiness in the mind and heart that, that we can, that we can come closer into what's deepest in our heart and mind. Sometimes, you know, I like to uh, mm, go to the edge of it. I have always found that like a useful tool in my own practice where whether it's, let's say it's a physical sensation, difficult one, painful one, ouch, 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 you know, um, we, you know, one thing one can do is mindfully move, um, move the body position. Sometimes that can be very helpful. You know, another time it, it's, it's like, I'll bring my attention if there's enough study and it's just to the very edge of it where you feel the, feel the sensation of it, feel the unpleasantness of it and right on the outside of it where it isn't there. And that actually helps strengthen um, mindfulness too, because we begin to see, oh, it's not everything. It's not sometimes when when there's difficulty, that's all the mind sees or experiences. So we can sort of play with that. What's that edge like? And just can I just hover around the edge? And that can be true for you know challenging uh, emotional situations that arise. You know, what about just kind of the edge? Just hang out a little bit on the edge of this feeling. You know, what's its quality? Like, what's its quality physically? Like, we get curious about it. So what that often requires in getting curious about it is is helping yourself out of the story a bit. So what do I mean about that? I don't mean that that our stories are insignificant. That would be dangerous, wouldn't it, if we just said that our stories are insignificant. The stories of our lives are insignificant. That's not true. It's just simply not true. But in terms of practice, you begin to notice how easily it is to get lost in the story, like consumed by it, and, and really paying attention to that. At least in my own experience, I would find, ah, like that's actually painful. And oftentimes I would notice there's like a drive to actually resolve it, you know, or get it better, get a different result, get a more satisfying result. Again, this isn't to dismiss, you know, contemplation in the right, someone asked a, a insight today, it's not to dismiss useful contemplation. In sitting practice, though, it's, it is really interesting if we can extract from the story without um, rejecting it, so to speak, or without maligning it, and just maybe come closer into the body, like what's happening, what's happening sensation-wise in relationship to this story or feeling. Well, let's just see how that is. Notice, notice what it's like. We become curious to, we, we widen the lens, but we stay present with it. 
it's so interesting to pay attention to the the aversive mind. That's one of the hindrances, aversion. It comes up in our minds and it definitely comes up in, in relationship to meditation practice. Particularly, you know, on an intensive retreat. It's it's unavoidable because why? Because things aren't always pleasant. It's kind of that simple. So aversion can arise sometimes really intensively to even what f- could feel like a small thing. It's just... Um, I was just thinking like one time when I was, was sitting, um, just walking into the bathroom and the toilet seat was up. You know, it's like this fire of unpleasant <laughs> feeling <laughs> arose. And she's like, okay, okay, you know, I'm going to write a note, you know. It's like, where are you going to post it? <laughs> uh, or like just, whoa, can I just be with that? And, and in some ways, all of the associations with that can I just just be present with what it's like in my own experience right now? Another time I was on a, a loving kindness, a metta meditation retreat, and so in that retreat, seven day retreat, the whole retreat, you're you're um, practicing loving kindness and repeating phrases. It's a it's a concentration practice, so really all day long, you know in the bathroom while you're eating, you know, washing up, uh, walking, all the transition time, you're just doing the loving kindness phrases. And on this particular retreat, what it kept repeating for me was uh, something that I was really pissed off about. Um, and just like the story kept coming up and it was actually about a friend who's a Dharma colleague and it had to do with Dharma things. It's like, so there was this, pissed off story repeating itself like hourly throughout the retreat and then on top of that it was guess what this shouldn't be happening you're in a meta retreat gene and you're just like this is like really low grade here <laughs> and um it it again it took me almost a whole retreat it, and there was just one moment when it was like this is the insider rose is you know you're actually not accepting what's happening in your mind. That's actually all that's going on. And as soon as that insight arose, there was just this just like flood of compassion, of self-compassion. You know, it seems so simple, but it was really revelatory for me. You know, it was, it was absolutely liberating of just like, honey, honey, it's okay. It's really okay. So what? You know? You're pissed off. And, you know, it's going to get resolved one way or another. Liberating. Liberating to be with. What is? Liberating to be with our own experience. It doesn't have to be pleasant. It, in fact, actually, if it has to, it's going to be so unpleasant. No, because life isn't like that. So again, the courage it takes to meet that is no small deal. It can even feel like death. You know, when we surrender to that, whatever that is. I have to say that um, for me, it's so critical in offering mm, this to um, to clarify. This has nothing to do with passivity. It has nothing to do with non-action in our lives. And if anything, for me, um, practicing has strengthened my courage and determination um, towards uh, social justice and uh, compassion in the world. Um, in my own uh, Dharma community in Western Mass, we're, we're doing a lot of work around looking at uh, white privilege and and power, you know, and how even 
we may have unconscious uh, intentions, the, the impact of, of power unexamined. And we're doing it in the spirit of um, interracial dialogue and we're, we're in sangha together. And, you know, it doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, that's, that's so easy because we're all practitioners. But boy, does the practice support that investigation, like hugely, hugely. And I so appreciated, um, Shelley, when you, you mentioned that last night, because um, it's, it's essential, you know, and it's, it's, um, it's not easy to face uh, how we're impacted by the world or how we impact another, you know, even un- unintentionally. It's important, in my experience, it's important uh, to, that's liberation, to pay attention to cause and effect. Buddha talked a lot about cause and effect. You you do this, that happens. You do that, this happens. So just to be clear, this, you know, these instructions in here to to pay attention, uh, to, to wake up, our minds and hearts are, are very much about an active, alive, compassionate, wise presence. When he was sharing a story today, I, I won't say the story, but uh, I was so moved. Uh, it was a very powerful story. And, and, and she just said, you know, that... Uh, you know, she knew, it was after a retreat, she knew unequivocally the power of the practice in the way her heart-mind could meet the situation. I mean, you just even saying that right now, I can just feel my whole body reverberate because I know that truth. I know that experience from practice. That um, it's not about, oh, you need to be a Buddhist, please. Like, come on, let's not go there. It's really about what's, what is offered that is useful? What is offered that is skillful? What is offered that, you know, when I apply it, this happens. This makes sense to me. This allows my mind heart to, to open, to clear. Back to Anthony DeMello, he says, um, how do we find God? And he said, uh, the answer was, no one can help you there. And the person said, why not? For the same reason, no one can help the fish find the ocean. It's already there, you know? It's just like, we're just clearing away the clouds. You know, the, we're clearing away the clouds from our undefended hearts and minds. He also said, before enlightenment, I used to be depressed. After enlightenment, I'm still depressed. (laughs) The harder you try to change yourself, the worse it gets. And friends, if we don't have compassion in this, compassion and kindness, oh, I don't even, I, I don't even know how, I wouldn't even know how to practice without it. it. It's not like the secondary, you know, thing. It's essential. It's two wings of a bird, compassion and wisdom. And I like to think of mindfulness as the rudder Wisdom, the boat, and compassion, the sail. A sail that carries us through this world of circumstance and conditions. So I'd like to end, if I can find it. Where are you, Dalai Lama? Here. A couple of uh, quotes from the Dalai Lama. 
Hello, Dalai Lama is a, um, I know he needs no explanation, but um, a spiritual leader of Tibet, exiled from Tibet. Um, had to leave as a young man, has seen countless violent deaths of his loved ones, is still leading that country spiritually uh, away from there and certainly has been a guide to many of us and is not a perfect person. So in two, th- two quotes he said. One, he said, when we meet real tragedy in life, we can react in two ways, either by losing hope and falling into self-destructive habits or by using the challenge to find our inner strength. I just find that very apt for now, for these times right now. It's so easy to, understandably, it's so easy to collapse. And he says, never give up. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace. In your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, never give up. And remember, you're not the family dog. No perfection is needed. So, uh, that is my offering to you this evening, uh, dear friends. And uh, thank you so much, really, for your... um, your beautiful attention and your practice. It's um, deeply inspiring. So I'm wishing you, you well, moment to moment. Mm. Maybe we can take a minute or two to sit together and then we'll have a walking and brief walking and then final sitting. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, never give up. Mm.